Good morning, and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you are interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This morning, Dr. Sarah Vakshuri will be joining us to talk about the impact of the coronavirus outbreak on the energy market. Dr. Sarah Vakshuri is founder and president of SVB Energy International, a strategic energy consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C. and Dubai. She is also an adjunct professor of energy security at the Institute of World Politics. Dr. Vakshuri has about two decades of experience working in the energy industry with extensive experience in global energy market studies, energy security, and geopolitical risk. And she has consulted numerous public and private sector energy and policy leaders. Dr. Vakshuri also has the experience of working in both public and private sectors of the Iranian energy industry. Dr. Vakshuri, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Hannah. It's nice to see you. So the coronavirus has been a huge topic of discussion recently because it has been affecting so many different aspects of our daily life, you know, whether that be the economy, you know, our political discussion, you know, even our health. Um, but I think an area that has really been discussed a lot is, you know, the energy market and how the coronavirus is affecting that. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone has noticed how low oil prices have been recently, you know, can, we can most likely equivalent that to the coronavirus, you know, but there's a lot of like underlying factors there as well. You know, I know later we'll talk about OPEC, you know, and the Saudi Russia, you know, oil war that is taking place. Um, but just starting off, how has the coronavirus impacted the oil market? You know, and why are prices so low? Uh, so uh, the coronavirus, the first and initial impact that had on the uh, oil market was the impact on the demand. So obviously the social distancing and the lockdowns that was necessary for the people to prevent the spread of the coronavirus had uh, reduced significantly the transportation, flying, car, driving, trucks. So all of these social distancing and lockdowns have reduced significantly the transportation. And also, obviously, many um, factories had to be shut down uh, at the beginning when the coronavirus was just the China phenomenon. Mm -hmm. at, uh, when the, at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, that this was mostly a China and then spread it to few countries, most of the organizations uh, like International Energy Agency uh, or uh, EIA or OPEC have revised their estimates for the demand. Mm -hmm. And most of them, they have... Uh, cut back about a million barrels of demand from the market. That was their initial estimate. But gradually, when the coronavirus became a global issue, and now we have almost all the countries in the world, including us, uh, in a lockdowns and at home, and the social distancing, beca distancing became a global issue, the demand significantly decreased. And now we have estimates of about uh, like a 10 0.5 million barrels of demand cut uh, in the month of March. Uh, there are estimates, uh, the Goldman Sachs estimates, uh, and de depending on which uh, agency or bank or invest, uh, investment institution you look, there is uh, estimates of between 17 to 18 million barrels a day of demand cut in April. And today there are um, new figures that the demand could initially cut about 35 million barrels per day. This is a lot. So the, the global oil demand is about, or consumption is about 100 million barrels per day. 30, 
10 to 35 is about 10 to 35 percent of global uh, demand decrease. And I should tell you that about 60 percent of global oil demand is in the transportation system, uh, sector. So all this flying, uh, which consumes jet fuel or gasoline in the cars, uh, diesel in the trucks, about 60% of global oil demand goes into transportation system. And that's almost suspended uh, everywhere in the world or reduced significantly. So the initial impact of coronavirus started with impact on the demand. So there was a shock on the demand that is growing bigger and bigger as we go. We are uh, now there is not, we, we still are not sure that for how, how big and for how long this impact is going to be on the demand. The, on the other side, we also have a supply shock. Why? Because in the March meeting, OPEC and Russia, non-OPEC, could not agree in deepening the export, uh, their production cut, and also they did not agree to extend their uh, previous agreement to cut back their production. So practically from April 1st, they announced the free market, which means that all the producers are going to produce to whatever they want, which most of them like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Russia, they all announced that they're going to produce to their maximum capacity. So we have a demand shock from one side and also shock, a supply shock that both of them have changed the balance of the market and um, we see that how prices uh, have been falling and still no one knows how, how long and for how long and how much they're going to be lower. Yeah, and um, just kind of a quick question to add to that. You know, is OPEC right now trying to do anything to regulate the oil market? Are they kind of still in like a standoff? Um, and I'm trying to figure out uh, supply and demand. Uh, so uh, can, can you repeat your question? Is this yeah. about the OPEC? Yeah. So are they doing anything, you know, right now to try to regulate the oil market? Um, Uh, uh, scheduled the OPEC meeting in March to uh, either the to extend the OPEC plus agreement, which was the agreement between OPEC and non-OPEC, which the biggest non-OPEC country was Russia, producer, to uh, extend the uh, agreement that was formed in 2017, that uh, the OPEC and non-OPEC countries, uh, some of them, including Russia, would cut back their production. So what happened in the March, not only they reached an agreement to increase their production cut because of the uh, impact of coronavirus on the demand, but also that agreement that was formed in 2017 somehow broke. So it was not extended. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that there are talks between Saudis and Russian and US officials, energy officials, they're talking and they're saying that, how can they get back to the table? How can they uh, create a balance in the market? But in that previous form that we were expecting to happen in March did not happen. And I would like to add that I discussed the impact of coronavirus on the demand, but we are still not sure that how big and for how long this impact is going to be. Why? Because at the beginning, we had a commodity crisis. We had a demand that was specifically directly impacted the oil uh, demand in terms of transportation, for instance. But now we have a global financial crisis. We have a global economy crisis. And for most of the, um, uh, most of the uh, investors and uh, uh, economists, Economic recession is a base case scenario, which means that everybody 
agrees that we are going, we are now, and we are going to be in an economic recession. So we are now transferred from a commodity uh, crisis, which was a crisis for oil demand, into a global financial and economic recession and crisis. So all of this can also reduce the speed of economic growth. And whenever we don't have economic growth and economic slowdown, you're going to have a lower demand for energy. So not only now we have a direct impact on the uh, on the uh, oil demand, which means there's no flying no, or less flying or less uh, transportation, but we are going to have the engine of the oil demand, which is the economic growth, is going to slow down for significantly, and we don't know for how long. So even if we have the lockdowns stop within a month or two, and we are going to have again the transportation goes back to the, let's say previous level or closer to what it was before the coronavirus outbreak. But still, we have an economic slowdown in most of the countries, which means the demand for oil will be uh, lower. So at this point, there is not an exact estimate that how much the demand is going to be uh, affected. And on the OPEC side, um, I told you like the demand have been heard about. 20 to 30, 20%, like 15 to 20%, and is expected to be uh, impacted about 35, 30 to 35%. Even if OPEC and Russia, non OPEC and US, at this point agree to cut back their production, let's say uh, it was suggested in March that the production should be cut additional 1.5 million barrels per day, and the previous agreement already cut back 1.7 million barrels per day of oil. So at this point, we have about four to five million barrels per day of oversupply. But on the demand, we have 35 million barrels or like 20 to 35 million barrels of demand cut. So even if OPEC and all the countries go back on their production, let's say cut back about four to five million barrels per day, we still, the demand is still is way lower than supply. So it's very hard to know when this balance between uh, supply and demand and market fundamentals is going to happen. Great. Thank you. Um... I know we talked a little bit before the podcast about, you know, the Russia-Saudi oil war, um, and you disagreed and said that it's not a war, it's just, you know, different strategies kind of coming about. So could you explain to listeners a little bit more about, you know, the so-called Saudi-Russia oil war and kind of why you disagree with those terms and kind of really what's happening here? That's right. Well, the, the, the concept and the terms oil war makes a very good topic in title <laughs> for a book or a very exciting and exotic hashtag uh, for social media. But we have been talking to the, both the, the Saudis, Russian energy officials and delegates uh, and the OPEC. And also they issued their formal uh, statements and uh, interviews. So there, there is no war in the market, even though the consequences of this is the strat the, the country's producers strategy might look like a war mm -hmm. and so why i disagree with this because what is happening in the market did not happen because russia or saudi arabia they had an explicit goal to target another producers now we are talking about us shale so they did not create a war because they wanted to win over uh, another producers or another, uh, to take over someone else's market share but this the situation that we are currently in, the, in, in it happened because of what I call it a struggle for survival or strategy for survival. Because at the time of the significant uh, demand uh, shock, 
for the major producers that all of them, their economy somehow and to some extent is dependent on their oil export. It's a matter of survival. And how do you survive when the oil prices are low? You try to sell as much as you can. And you cannot anymore uh, commit to an agreement that might subsidize someone else's production. So if you go back to 2017, from 2017 until March 2020, the OPEC plus the major producers, Saudi and Russia, they cut back significantly on their production. But whatever was cut from the market was produced and uh, supplied by U.S. shell producers. We have U.S. shell production up about 50% from 2017 to, to, up to now. So the prices was held at a certain level by the production cut coming from OPEC plus countries so that the shell, grow, shell would grow. So we have countries cutting back their production, the prices are at certain level or not collapsing, but on the other side, US shell production goes high and high and high. So at the situation that everybody's loser because the production, the, the demand has been hit significantly, there is no more room for, you know, for sustaining. So everybody's policy goes back to uh, how, how, that, how can they choose the perfect policy for themselves to survive. And I would like to go back a bit into history. In 1998, uh, we have the um, Asian financial crisis uh, in the Asian markets. Saudi Arabia take the same exact position of today. They took a position of market share uh, uh, policy, which was, okay, we expand our uh, production and export to the maximum level that we can, unless all the countries come together and agree to cut back their production, which at that time we had Venezuela and Mexico, uh, which we could substitute them by Russia and Saudi, uh, Russia and US production at this point. So it doesn't make any more sense at the market that everybody loses that one country cut back production in order to give room to the other ones. That's why I don't call it war, but the, but the consequences obviously are the same because if the production increases, we have a demand shock, the prices will collapse. Those producers that their production cost is higher, in this case, mostly US shale producers, are going to uh, lose the most and uh, being affected uh, negatively uh, more than everyone else. Great. Uh, just kind of transitioning to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, they announced their plans to boost oil exports even further from April to May reaching a record of more than 10 million barrels a day. Um, where does that additional export capacity come from? And can Saudi Arabia really expand its exports? So Saudi Arabia was, uh, had a very unique situation in the market that always had a, a significant uh, amount of spare capacity. Uh, Saudi's official production capacity was about, or announced to be about 12 million barrels per day. But Saudi's production was always about 10 and at maximum levels, 11 or 11, oh, like 11.05. Like, um, so Saudi Arabia never produced at 12 million barrels of production in a sustainable uh, level. But that's what their production capacity. So there is a difference between production capacity and actual production. Production capacity means that they can produce at that level. But actual production means what are they actually producing? So Saudi announced that for the month of April, they're going to produce about 12.5 uh, 
tree, uh, they're going to, uh, the, the production is going to reach to 12 million barrels per day, and they would, they're going to withdraw about 300,000 barrels of oil from their inventories. Uh, there are a lot of uncertain things in the market uh, and concerns that if Saudi Arabia could actually produce 12 million barrels of oil, because it never historically produced that much. But, uh, and also mm, there are uh, misunderstandings. Uh, there is, it's not clear that if all of these 12 million barrels of oil is crude oil or NGLs or like, uh, let's say other oil liquids, uh, petroleum oil liquids are included in that. But anyhow, at this Point, there are Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil stored in its inventories inside the kingdom and also it's uh, it's very common for, uh, in the oil trade business that major producers will have inventories leased or, or owned around the world and store oil those inventories for sell on the I mean to uh, flex, uh, for flexibility of the trade so Saudi Arabia has enough uh, oil um, around the world and inside the kingdom and on the uh, production capacity to reach the total this level of production and export. For the month of March, uh, for the month of May, they announced that this is going to be additional 300,000 barrels. They're going to add to that. So again, there is a difference between uh, the export capacity and actual export. So Saudi Arabia can export more by consuming less oil inside the country. And this has happened because of a long-term strategy that Saudi Arabia had, uh, what they call it a Saudi master gas plan. So, and under the Saudi master gas plan, the kingdom um, is planning and has targeted different projects to increase the uh, Saudi Arabia's gas, domestic gas production to produce more electricity inside the kingdom using gas instead of oil and liquids. So um, they have uh, one of their plants at uh, uh, Farhili uh, gas plant, uh, which is located in Dubai and is processing a non-associated gas from two um, uh, offshore and onshore uh, fields of um, Haspa and Khurasaniya. And by increasing the domestic gas uh, production in the coming month, uh, Saudi Arabia will be able to substitute the oil that was using in its domestic power generation to produce electricity and free up some of that oil and export it. So that's how Saudi Arabia also uh, expanded its export capacity, not only by increasing its export, uh, increasing its production, using in, in, in inventories, but also from uh, reducing its domestic uh, consumption of uh, oil. Thank you. Um, just kind of switching over to Russia now. Um, so what is their red line in terms of the oil price range? Um, just kind of a follow-up question. Is Russia trying to make a play for more power in the global oil market? So um, most of uh, uh, these countries, the oil producing countries, because they're uh, dependent on their oil uh, income and oil export revenue, they are uh, somehow uh, have some fiscal budget red lines, which we call it budgetary break even. For Russia, the budgetary break even is $42.40 uh, per barrel, uh, which is relatively much lower than many of the OPEC producers that their fiscal budget break even is 60 to 70 or 75 or higher uh, dollars per barrel. But now we know that the oil prices are much lower than uh, $40. Um, 
Russia, Russian budgets and all of these countries over producers budgets have its own flexibility. They cut back on their expenditures, they use their uh, reserves, foreign reserves, or um, uh, they have flexibilities. But we have another break-even price and that's um, production break-even price. And what would be the price that at that price producing bar a barrel of oil from, um, from the ground makes economic sense. Uh, Russia and Russia, like Saudi Arabia, has one of the lowest production costs. Uh, not as low as Saudi Arabia, but it's still, relatively, the production cost of Saudi Arabia, of Russia is uh, low. Uh, and um, there are estimates between like 10 to 12 dollars. But this is if you add the operational cost to the capital cost. Um, if uh, we look at the capital cost, most of Russian companies, uh, Rosneft, Gazprom, they are all, uh, their uh, capital cost or capex for uh, oil production is around $4 per barrel. And if you add the operational cost to that, it goes to some, somewhere around 10 to $12 per barrel. So if the prices collapse to, let's say, below $20 to about, around teens, like 15 or uh, 12, still uh, Russian uh, oil production, uh, can continue. And the other thing is the flexibility, uh, uh, the flexibility that Russian uh, producers have. Uh, before going to that, I should mention that Russian energy infrastructure is uh, very well uh, developed. So that also helps to reduce the cost and doesn't add additional uh, cost for uh, Russian producers to transfer and transport their oil. But coming back to the uh, flexibilities that the Russian producers have, uh, I have to mention uh, to the flexible tax system. So Russian oil producers obviously are paying the tax to the government, but this tax reduces when the oil prices to reduce when the oil prices reduce. So if the prices of oil are, let's say, at 50 or 55 range, they're paying higher percentage of the tax. Uh, but if the prices reduce to 20 or 20, range of 20s or under that, they're going to pay less percentage of the tax to the government. So they're not going to hurt a lot. And also there is a ex uh, the exchange market flexibility. Um, you know that uh, obviously the... Uh, exchange rate of ruble, Russian ruble versus uh, dollar, gives more flexibility to Russian producers. Why? Because they sell most of their oil in dollar, but almost all of their expenses is in ruble. So by converting this dollar to ruble that loses value against dollar, they create a um, it creates a le uh, leverage for Russian producers to still have enough cash flows and uh, more comfortable and flexible uh, balance sheets. So these are all very important, but for how long Russia can go with uh, lower prices? Obviously lower oil prices, as and I said, uh, the companies are going to pay lower tax to the government, the ruble will uh, depreciate. So the, the budget, the, the fiscal budget of Russia is going to face problem if uh, these low oil prices go for longer. And obviously, if we have a, a new norm of low oil prices of, let's say, teens, like under $20 or in the $20 to $30 uh, barrels per day, for a longer period of time, we are seeing a budget deficit. And what would happen ultimately is that the Russian government would increase the percentage of the tax on the producers. So ultimately producers have to also pay higher uh, uh, taxes to the government. So it very much depends that if this low oil prices is a new norm in the market and for how long this is going to last.
So can you tell us a little bit about what the impact of low oil prices will be on U.S. shale? So the impact of the low oil prices on the U.S. shale is going to uh, be uh, significant in terms of the, um, the production volume. Uh, but there are lots of more, a lot more nuances to that uh, if we will want to go into the detail and discuss that. Um, the first thing is that um, we talk, uh, we participated in discussions with most of the shale producers um, in the U.S. And what we learned from them is that they have learned their lessons of the previous um, oil price uh, drop uh, back in 2016. And most of them had much more nuanced uh, strategies and flexibilities within their uh, balance sheets uh, to protect themselves. So what we understand uh, is that, uh, what we understood from these discussions with these uh, shale producers is that the shale, US shale production is going to obviously hit um, and um, but the but the investment is in a way that there has been already investments uh, done prior to the coronavirus impact, and you're going to see a production as a result of those investments to be steady and um, continue. But as we are moving toward the end of uh, 2020 and in 2021, you're going to see a huge drop of production. Uh, at this point, there were most of the companies have not uh, an exact estimate of how much really their shale or production is going to drop. Uh, what we know is that obviously there's not going to have the growth that was expected, but also there's going to be a significant drop. And uh, there are estimates of between something between two million barrels uh, per day, uh, two million to four million barrels uh, of uh, production cut as we are heading to 2021. So the, the production cut is going to accelerate in 2021 because obviously the more we are moving to the uh, after Corona and to the end of 2020, the investment and the capital expenditures of these co uh, companies, capital spending of these companies uh, in the um, uh, shell uh, uh, is going to reduce. Uh, obviously, most of these uh, producers are going to drill much less than uh, it was planned. But in, in terms of the shale company's survival, are, going, are these companies going to survive? And uh, the main difference this time is that we have much larger, uh, we have a big producers that are involved in the shale industry, which they have a larger tolerance for uh, lower oil prices in a, in a longer term. But also and uh, the smaller companies, the smaller share producers, they have created a lot more flexibilities in their um, portfolios and their um, uh, balance sheets that could protect them for a while to survive and weather the lower prices. Some of these companies have um, created a portfolio that it uh, includes, let's say, investments outside of the U.S. Uh, and investment in different types of formations that um, they are producing oil at different uh, prices. But obviously now the prices are way lower than um, uh, the average, like uh, even low, uh, low cost uh, oil uh, wells uh, uh, in the shale formations. So we are going to obviously see a significant hit uh, in U.S. production. The other issue is that um, 
most of, and now that we have oversupply in the market, most of the inventories are filled because, uh, and are going to fill up fast. So um, the prices are going to collapse even further. Why? Because we don't have demand. On the other side, we have producers like Saudi Arabia, Russia, um, and also shell producers that are producing as much as uh, they can. Uh, produce in as part of their uh, production capacity. So these production that has no customer has to store somewhere. And eventually, um, very soon, all these inventories and storages are going to fill up, both underground and also the tankers that are used as a floating storages. So now we see that the um, tanker rates um, and uh, floating storage rates have hit the historical high. They're so high because everybody needs this tanker to transfer the oil somewhere, which is oversupplied and everybody's producing more than before, but also they're using them as uh, storages. So what will happen is that, first of all, it creates a gap. And the, today's spot prices are much cheaper than future prices because of these, uh, the issue of uh, the oversupply. Which this contangle, what we call this market condition a contangle, which now we are facing a super contangle, helps some of these shale producers and also other traders to benefit from future prices. Some of these shale producers have hedged their production. But I would like to add this caveat that this, uh, what we learned is that this hedging strategy that they have did not, it does not mean that it's hedging their drilling activities, but it's mostly hedging their cash flow. So even though even those uh, producers that have hedged uh, their production at certain oil prices of let's say fifty or fifty five dollars per barrel does not mean that they are not they do not mean that is going to uh, they are going to increase their uh, production. So at some point uh, we're going to the prices to collapse even lower uh, than what it is. And if uh, we add the inventory cost and if all these producers are forced to get rid of this production or, or stored oil because at some point the prices are so low that they are, uh, they're just paying for storage for oil that has no value. So the prices might collapse even to a negative uh, prices because you want to get rid of that oil, not paying the rate uh, or lease for uh, storages. And this actually happened. Like uh, we have the uh, yesterday, the uh, Wyoming um, asphalt, uh, asphalt uh, sour, which is type of a grade uh, of a very heavy oil that is used uh, in uh, pavement bitumen, have already reached to negative uh, in U.S. because there's no customer for that. You have to just pay for inventory, so it makes sense that you just get rid of it as, as soon as you can. But we are we are still waiting. I mean, there is negotiations uh, and talks happening between uh, Russian producers and you, uh, uh, Saudi. Also, at, at this point. And the Russian, uh, the, the U.S. shell producers have, are uh, forming lobbies and they're looking into different types of strategies. Strategies from what we used to call it an oil weapon of producers against consumers in the uh, 1970s when Saudi Arabia um, decided to increase uh, prices or stop selling oil to certain countries. Now we might have uh, U.S. Uh, uh, penalizing uh, some of the major producers like Saudi Arabia if they do not ultimately agree to cut back production. But this would, I would again, I would not jump into a conclusion that this would be the first card uh, of US and US producers to play, but we are going to have more um, constructive negotiations between countries. We had the Texas Railroad Commissioner um, and the Commission to, um, and, uh, 
talking uh, with the media uh, or issuing statements that they had uh, negotiations or talks uh, with OPEC and they might observe the next OPEC meeting. Uh, this means that they might somehow, the shell producers, uh, some of them came up to this conclusion that if they also contribute uh, to the production cut, uh, and then they might prevent a more significant cut if the prices would go higher. Um, so let's say if the shell producers were envisioning that their production is going to drop by 20 or 40%, if they would contribute 10% of cut, well, entirely, and then and they would have OPEC and Saudi Arabia uh, and Russia cut back their production so the prices would go up, um, then they would prevent additional costs. So that would make sense uh, for shale producers uh, to do so, but there is not uh, a unanimous uh, or consensus among all of the shale producers uh, to agree with a quota or cut back their production at this level. Also, even if Texas goes with the quota system, and decides to cut back production voluntarily, this does not mean that other US state, uh, states that are producing oil are going to cut back their production. So at this time, there's a lot of uncertainty. Also, if we reach to a point that we understand that cutting back production does not going to help the prices so much because the demand is hit significantly, then again, for producers it might not make sense to cut back production, they might go still to maximum sales. But obviously, Again, going back to the issue of inventories, there are some infrastructural limits for the production. So if we have uh, no agreement again, uh, between Russia or Saudi Arabia or OPEC, non-OPEC and United States for cutting back production, at some point all the inventories and pipelines and tankers are going to fill up with oil and then producers have to come to cut back on their production. But again, just to summarize my answer uh, to your question about the shell producers, yes, the shell producers are going to hit hard uh, or the hardest because the production cost for them is really high and the uh, we're going to see a production cut uh, being accelerated at the end of 2020 and as we are uh, heading to 2021 uh, most of them might have issues with they might need to cut back their dividends or um, cut back their uh, activities and their capital as uh, or um, uh, capex or opex uh, uh, operational uh, uh, expenses so yes there's going to be um, a lot of uh, issues and challenges for us and shale producers and how long do you think we'll see these low oil prices this is a, <laughs> a this is a big question <laughs> i think that no one really is certain at this point because you need to first be sure and going back to the price war this is something that actually russian delegate discussed um both in the february when saudi arabia was trying to uh have an emergency meeting before march and uh, to cut back production to mitigate uh, the impact of lower demand uh, because of the coronavirus and also in the actual meeting uh, that met there are many uh, i have heard many discussions that like russia deliberately uh chose this uh, war or started this war to um, impact the shale uh, producers. Uh, the impact on a shale producer is a consequence, obviously, uh, but when we talk to Russian, uh, at least the OPEC delegates and energy officials, there was really a technical issue. The Russian uh, producers and Russian government at that point, they were not sure that how much uh, the oil demand is going to be impacted. And March meeting, uh, OPEC's March meeting is passed. Today is 2nd of 
April, we're sitting uh, together and talking, still there's not an exact um, estimate of how much the demand is going to be impacted, not only by coronavirus, but even if the lockdowns and social distancing because of coronavirus stops within a few months, the economic slowdown, the economic uh, uh, recession and the financial uh, uh, market uh, impacts on the financial markets and economy, how are they going to impact the uh, demand and for how, uh, how long? So this is a question that no one knows. And going back to producers' strategy, Saudi Arabia and specifically Russia, that um, many are perceiving this as a war it just goes back to a simple uh simple question how much the, uh, the demand is going to be impacted and how much we really need to cut back our production if you cut back our production let's say 1.5 million barrels or 500 or whatever was expected from uh opec and non-opec and all going back to each country uh, let's say russia would this production cut help the prices to come up what if we commit to a production cut, but the demand cut, uh, the demand uh, shock is way greater and the prices are going to collapse? Then it might be, might be better off by selling more oil rather than committing to a, com a production cut if the prices is not and the market is not going to be balanced. So I guess the next um, kind of resorting back to uh, US, Russia, you know, Saudi Arabia, kind of all the stuff that's going on. Um, do you think that there would be any agreement to work together to stabilize the market or kind of how do, how do you see that, you know, playing off? Uh, actually, I'm very uh, optimistic. I think as um, so we see OPEC as a, a market, let's say somehow market regulator mm -hmm. and um, did Saudi Arabia, going back to Saudi Arabia's strategy, Saudi Arabia started a war uh, or is engaging in a war by uh, maximizing its production or is somehow managing the market by maximizing its uh, production. I would like the second, uh, second uh, concept and scenario. I think that Saudi Arabia's strategy to announce that it's going to produce a maximum level and also giving significant discounts in, the, in different markets, Asia, US and Europe, is somehow indirectly managing the market when no one wanted to sit on a table and agree to production cut. So this is another way of market management that Saudi Arabia is doing. So Saudi Arabia's strategy at this point is that, okay, if Russia doesn't want to cut because they're not certain that how much uh, the oil demand is going to be impacted, or many Russian companies talk about technicality of cutting back more oil, Oil production, they're arguing that uh, they're going to have technical problems for cutting back this production and again restoring it when they need. If US shale producers are just looking at their commitments to their shareholders, the dividend that they have to pay, and their, their model is just based on their cash flow and commitment to shareholders they do not want to cut, then let's manage the market this way. Mm -hmm. I flood the market and then let's see who let's see when everybody would come back to the table. So again, I see this strategy as a market management strategy by Saudi Arabia when everybody, when, when the negotiation or voluntarily cut as a strategy fails to work. And I think that I believe that at some point this maximum production that Saudi Arabia is, uh, has started and is implementing, uh, it's going to, as I said, fill up all the inventories, prices might hit 
very low, close to zero for some grades of oil, maybe negative. And at that point, the producers are going to finally come back to a table and decide that we have to cut back our production. And I think uh, this time, going back again, the comparison between 1998, at this time, we might see that uh, Venezuela at that time be replaced with shale producers. And shale producers at this point are producing way higher than Venezuela at that time. Even if Texas, the state of Texas only agree to cut back production, Texas is, if we, consider Texas, just the state of Texas and OPEC member could be one of the highest producer of OPEC uh, in a member. It could be one of the OPEC uh, producers producing about uh, 5 million barrels per day of oil. So even if Texas would agree to cut back uh, voluntarily some of its production, then um, Russia, Saudi Arabia, if everybody come and agree that to take a burden of cutting back, uh, there is a high chance of agreement especially when all the producers see that there's no more inventories and the prices are collapsing uh, uh, to, to the ranges that are now. So I'm optimistic that there's going to be uh, a new deal in a new format. Um, and if there is not, then we might see um, different, more aggressive policies coming, let's say from US by sanctioning or penalizing some of the uh, producers like Saudi Arabia. So I think that there are different scenarios and strategies. And the first one, it would be obviously negotiate for volunteer cut among everybody. There, there should not be any cheating. No one on the table, even Norway uh, or Canada, everybody should cut back um, on their own shares. And then we might have a unanimous agreement or like OPEC countries with most of the non-OPEC countries coming out with a production cut. Uh, I guess just kind of a follow-up question. Um, China is one of the biggest importers of oil and they're kind of on the upside of, of this coronavirus um, playing out and they're kind of you know, getting back to normal, so to speak. How do you see that playing an impact on um, the energy market going forward um, with the production and, and um, imports and things like that? Well, obviously, China, China's economy, and also after that, India are very important for for the global oil demand when it comes to um, to let's say petrochemicals, to even to transportation. Mm -hmm. But um, at this point, that you're having a global lockdown and we have all these huge uh, volumes of transportation and the demand in the transportation se sector cut back from the market uh, for the coming months is very hard uh, to envision a big impact on the demand. But obviously low oil, low oil prices stimulate demand. So yes. when we have low oil prices, China or India or other consumer of oil are going to produce more oil. And on the other side, you're going to see companies like Tesla or um, EV or renewable energies might hit harder because um, just looking at a stock market, we see how uh, the shares of some of the companies like Tesla that are producing electronic vehicles or cars have hit hard. So when the prices are low, this is also another strategy to stimulate demand. And we saw that India and China both uh, benefited from low oil prices to fill up all their inventories and reserves. Mm -hmm. So yes, when the uh, their, the economy start growing and speeding up in countries like China, um, which is the main uh, oil, one of the main uh, oil consumer in the world, then you're going to have uh, the demand um, speeding up. 
Well, Dr. Bakshuri, thank you so much for joining the podcast and explaining to viewers the impact of the coronavirus outbreak on the energy market and kind of just touching on what the future holds in regards to the market and supply and demand. In the next podcast, we will discuss the economic implications of the coronavirus outbreak with IWP faculty member Dr. Anne Bradley. So listeners, stay tuned for our next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.